Yeah. Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power show on Ready for Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijar Nathan. And with us today is special guest Nicole Goodwin, a.k.a. Goodwin, um, the author of War, War Cries, as well as the 2020 Pushcart nominee, 2018-19 to 19 Franklin Furnace Fund recipient, and the 2018 Ragsdale Alice Justin Hayes Fellowship recipient, 2017 Emergency Hemisphere Institute Fellow, as well as 2013 to 14 Queer Art Mentorship Queer Art Literary Fellow. She published the articles Talking With My Daughter and Why Is, hap- what is, ha- Why is This Happening in Your Life? And in the New York Times, um, Parent Blog, Mother Load. Additionally, her work Desert Flowers is shortlisted and selected for performances by the Women's Playwriting National Conference in Cape Town, South Africa in 2015. Okay, so welcome, Nicole. Hello, how are you? Good, good. It's so good to see you and uh, so good to have you on the show. Um, let's start the conversation off a little bit about performance art, performance practice, I think as okay. you prefer to call it. And like, tell us a little bit about um, what that means to you. What does art mean to you? What does performance art mean to you? Well, performance art for me started as an underground thing, a DIY scene. So it will always hold a special place in my heart. Because it's the avant-garde of the avant-garde. It's the cutting edge of the cutting edge. So basically, um, finding audiences has always been a hop, skip, and a jump, a magic trick. Because art is viewed as a painting on a wall in a museum. And classic art gets this respect that... Um, you wouldn't necessarily see on the scene of uh, uh, performance art. But yet, performance art is one of the most indicative and crucial forms of art that I've ever been a part of. Because it critiques the critics. It polices the police. Mm. That's interesting. It's like, um, you performed... uh the performance piece, uh, Ain't I a Woman? Tell us a little bit about that specific performance piece and how uh, and how that evolved over the years. Well, it's been ongoing for about three or four years now. It's closer to four years than three. Oh, wow. wow. Um, for me, Ain't I a Woman has been this incredibly specific journey about my body and my body in public and ownership of my body and ownership of my persona. Um, Appearing topless in different um, places within um, the New York City area has been a journey because it, it literally signifies what it is to be a big black woman in public and to own one's body but to also realize that people are afraid of such a body and afraid of coming in contact with such a body. So with my performance, I really don't, I'm not aggressive, but I'm very assertive and I don't give any quarter to any um, pedestrian walking by. I want my body to be noticed. I want my body ownership of my body to be noticed. And it is. And it's taken into account 
in ways that it hasn't been before. So Ain't Our Woman is a liberating experience for the audience, but also for myself, it's been very cathartic. Good, good. Yeah, it's it's like uh, I actually had the chance to see this performance a couple years back uh, when really? we were discussing. Really, I didn't yeah. know. That was that was a number of years ago, but uh, like think two or three years ago, I went I went to see it. Um, but in the beginning of the show, I think we we were discussing trying to get you on, but then the show and um, yeah, it was it was very interesting, and very challenging in a sense because the I think there was I don't remember now exactly, but I think there was some music playing or something, or there's some I think there was a few artists performing in the same space, so there was some yes. uh, there was some. Um, you know, ambient uh, activity as well, but it was very, it was like meditative in a way. The whole whole exhibit, uh, the whole performance exhibit, which is several artists as well, and it was kind of like uh, an interesting experience. But um, and also you have on your um, uh, list of performances, um, "Black Art Is My Story." Uh, oh, this is a, this is an article, I believe. Uh, I thought this is a yes. Tell us a little bit about how. Um, you can also go a little bit into how identity, your identity, um, kind of informs your writings and your work and how that kind of, and how, and how that kind of perception, uh, and how you're redefining or are you redefining your identity or how are you, how you, how do you look at it? I am definitely redefining my identity as a black queer woman. I think the hardest thing about that has been literally being able to seize the day when it's come to that. Mm. So it's like people have tried to gaslight my identity for many, many years when I came out as queer. And, um, oh, she's just experimenting. Oh, she's just this, she's just that. And just negating my gender neutrality, um, negating my fluidity, negating my existence. Yeah. And through performance art, I was able to rediscover myself and to rediscover all these passions and all these intricacies about what made Goodwin Goodwin. And taking on the name Goodwin instead of um, using my um, the government name that I was given is a is is a throwback to being in the military, but also an awakening of spirit, and being the singular person, being the singular persona, and now has given me leeway to speak more for myself mm. and to speak more for the issues that I believe in and the 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 body in itself has a story. And my black body has always had a story attached to it. But it's come at a price. It's come at a price. And many people do not understand that the prices for big black bodies in society is a high price to pay. But at the same time, I wouldn't change it. I'm working on my health. I'm working on my spirit. But I wouldn't change the idea of struggle that I've had that's come through art. Because it's made me say something real. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that's so important to feel empowered. Part of the themes of the show is that, you know, we discover these truths and we help and allow them to empower ourselves in our communities. And I think through your empowerment, you're empowering other um, people who identify as such, who have similar identity tags or similar identity experiences uh, to be feel empowered as well. You're kind of paving that road. And I think it's really great. And when we think about like essential truths that also that are undervalued by society, that uh, society in general doesn't hold up, this is definitely one of them. But you also mentioned about how um, teaching to write in your pre-interview questions, rather, you're talking about how the way in which society teaches us to write is something that's problematic. And tell us a little bit more about that, what your perspective is. And Oh, definitely. So I came from a literary background. Um, a grammatically correct enforced background and when it comes to the way you speak and the way you write there is a schism especially for a person of color especially for a black person and I realized the divide very early on between my mother and myself and the way we spoke and the way we our mannerisms and how we were trying to communicate with each other. Sometimes it was a waltz, other times it was like a Greco-Roman fight. And I realized the root of that was that I had been taught that the way she speaks is wrong. And mm. the way I spoke was correct, as long as it was grammatically correct and proper. And this also does tie into Ain't I a Woman in a sense because it's a reclamation of, of language and a reclamation of communication and saying um, from an anthropological perspective, as long as I communicate my emotions, I'm correct. Mm. Versus you have to be in a certain box, in a certain type of uh, dialectic to be considered proper. Mm. And these pressures that come from white society, I'm just going to be honest, it comes from white society to be proper, to be grammatically correct. Um, it sucks the magic out of writing. And it replaces it with this racist trope that is like, okay, well, if that person is wrong because this is how they speak, then they are wrong mm. because this is who they are. We are what we speak. And I think the hardest thing about that was the realization of going to grad school, even though I didn't want to, for writing. And going to grad school for writing and being exposed to that racism those microaggressions, those cookie cutter uh, remarks that would try to place you in a mold and then say, well, you could do whatever you want once you have the degree, but you're already tainted once you have the degree. Mm. You're already stoned and marked and warped. And this doesn't just affect writing, this affects your psychology as a human being. Again, we are what we speak. So my 
my escape from that world was a very hard six years and going back into academia and saying, okay, well, I'm going to go into it this way and this is the way I choose and I'm going to challenge these old um, prospects and these racist perspectives. Um, it was a very hard six years because people of color don't believe in the racist tropes to be wrong. So not only are you fighting the white supremacist racist tropes, you're fighting your own people that have been indoctrinated. Mm. And it's very heartbreaking and it's very soul crushing. But to anyone who writes, to anyone who has the vernacular for oral history, for written history, I encourage you to keep going. Because there's a magic in telling our stories correctly. Mm. And by correctly, I mean, and by any means necessary. Thank you. Thank you. That's really powerful to hear you say that. And I definitely support that. I definitely want to create a space for that. Uh, I definitely want to say that that's very important to that communication comes in many forms and we need to honor the cultural legacy uh, and how um, the connections in human history and how, you know, kind of this imposition of a structure that is um, hierarchical is not acceptable, like in the sense of like, you know, the way in which um, these boundaries or these, these, these rules are enforced is like very discriminatory. So I understand what you're saying. And uh, to talk a little bit about your, your influences, um, you know, we talked to the, we had the question about uh, what, what, um, whose work or whose literary work or, or artistic work influenced you. Uh, that was one of the questions in the pre-interview question. Um, so, uh, yeah, talk a little bit about kind of how, how you've been influenced by different people's work. Uh, you mentioned James Waldron as an example of one of them. But if you have any others as well, um, you can just discuss generally, you know, if you can discuss generally how you've been influenced by other people's work and, and how does that inform your perspective, yeah. Well, um, my influences have broadened. So it's not just literary works that influence me. It's also um, photography or um, visual art, like Carrie Mae Weems. Her work um, inspires me a great deal. Renee Cox, her work inspires me tremendously. Um, and you can say a few words about their work, like what, what do their work entails or what, what kind of subjects they deal with. Well, Renee Cox, she does like these um, mandalas of the human, the black human form. Mm. Like artistic, like oils or, or paintings or photography? No, she um, she takes photography and she makes it into living motion pictures oh, wow. of mandalas. They're mm. very distinct form of art mm. that I've never really seen before, nor will I think I see again. Mm. Um. Carrie Mae Weems is known for her. Um, uh, she's best known. She took pictures of Mary J. Blige um, as a recent. But she has 
a huge catalog. She has a catalog that took her to Italy. That um, she also had these intimate uh, living room table pictures of a mother and daughter or of a woman playing cards, playing in solitaire by herself, smoking, smoking a cigarette, a black woman. These elegant photos of black life. Um, James Baldwin, obviously, yeah. we don't even have to <laughs> explicate on his catalog. Everybody should know who he is by now. Um, Langston Hughes, a personal favorite of mine. I learned about him when I was in third grade, and I, I've been chasing his work ever since. Just an amazing writer, an amazing human being. Thank you, thank you. And also I'm looking through to see, um, you know, uh, just to get a sense of also, um, you know, uh, let me see. Um, so now when you think about your life experiences and how they influence you, um, you mentioned a little bit of the, uh, yeah, what, what do you think is most, what do you think of the reflections that you think about that kind of return to as far as life experiences goes? What do you return to that is very pivotal in your artistic process or connected to your artistic process? Um, I, ret I return to a few things. I return to um, the story of my own womanhood. Yeah. And I'm working on a project with that. I'm working on a historical project as well that I tap into um, the voodoo religion and I'm chasing the prospect of holistic healing outside of the Western gaze. And um, I'm tapping into, I'm constantly tapping into my history in the military, even though it was brief for those three years. Mm -hmm. I revisit that. Um, I'm working on a second, a sister book to War Cries called War Crimes. I'm working on getting that published as we speak. And, you know, I tap into motherhood. I tap into blackness mm. as its own entity and then blackness in relation to myself. Queer, queer stories. So let's tap into a little bit into War Cries uh, okay. since you brought that up. Tell us a little bit about that project or that that work, and we can go into kind of how and then we can connect it to the proposed later work uh, a little later. But first, let's go into the original, and then we can talk a little bit about how that influence or how that trajectory is going into uh, its late its companion piece. Yeah. Well, War Cries took me thirteen years to create and so it was um a bit of a beast to tackle so it was uh it was 10 to write and then three to um no it was yeah yeah it was 10 to write because i got out of the army in 2004 so I want to say, but I wrote, I started writing in the desert in Iraq in 2003. So it took me 10 years to write and then three years to edit. Mm. 
and it was um it was an experience because it was the first book that I had ever written and I mean it was a serious collection of poems and it set my heart on fire to write these poems but I was very much afraid of them I was afraid of the idea that this these these words were toxic and I I wasn't sure if they belonged in the world or not. And then listening to friends, I was like, yeah, okay, I can do this. So I self-published a book and um, people enjoy it. Those who, those who support it, I appreciate. They have really enjoyed it. One woman remarked that it was ice cold water in the face were necessary and I often think back to that remark as something there's a harshness to war crime um, war cries excuse me there's a harshness to war cries that is necessary because it's a coming of age story in poems and it's a bitter it's a bitter growing up because I turned of age, I turned 23 while I was deployed to Iraq. And I had already become a mother. And I was separated from my daughter. So I was carrying this internal pain that I didn't show to anyone. And There was nothing that could be done. There was nothing that could be done. It was between a rock and a hard place. And all I could do was write. Just write the story down. Hmm. As much as I can remember. And that doesn't make me a hero in this these stories. That just makes me a witness. Hmm. So basically my understanding is that... Uh, the selection of poems were basically like a kind of like a reflection on your experience in the military and kind of like a hard look at your experiences in a way. Um, and then what was the proposed project? What what was your ideas about war crimes are now? Is it kind of looking at the more administrative aspects or like the more the military industrial complex or, uh, what would be the, what would be the, um, focus of war crimes? Definitely the military industrial complex, um, complex, um, but also my part in it. Yeah. And, and, and personal responsibility. Mm. So, um, where war cries was my confusion and disdain. War crimes is more of a focused laser into what couldn't have been said in the beginning. Mm. So the economics of war, definitely, I look at that. Yeah. 
Interesting, interesting. Um, yeah, and then also you're talking a little bit about um, uh, kind of the interrogation of gender as well. That's something we can think about and, and refer, reflect on a little bit more. So um, if you talk a little bit more about that and about how in your writing work, how that appears, um, kind of like, you know, you identified as a queer woman. Uh, so uh, how does like interrogating your womanhood uh, kind of appear in your writing in, in, in ways? Because we discussed about Ain't I a Woman as being a, a, a way to interrogate in a performance kind of by like looking at, by kind of interrogating the gaze, if I may, the, interrogating the gaze of, the, of the, the viewer and kind of getting them in dialogue with that gaze and kind of provocative in a way or provoking the the um, contemplation of the viewer to think about how they're looking at you and, and the way in which you, you are viewed in which way in which people view you. So, um, but what are other ways in which when you do with writing, obviously you don't have the, the same tools, but uh, if you discuss a little bit of the differences between writing about your gender and also about um, as opposed to like performing performance. Well, um, my writing is very much an introverted process. Mm. Whereas my performance is more extroverted. Yeah, of course, of course, yeah. Um So what are the topics you bring up? Yeah, what are the topics you bring up in your writing or Well I or themes. When I write it's more of a realm. So it's the idea of bringing in the magic of the realms into this space. Mm. And I I mean I've covered things uh, uh sexual abuse, being a sexual abuse survivor, um, being a mother, um, being in the military, and pardon my French, the clusterfuck that was. Mm. Um I've also covered this new philosophy that I'm adapting about myself um, called softness and strength, utilizing my vulnerabilities as without armor and going into the world, not prepared for a fight, but, and not begging for substance but using my vulnerabilities as a way to show my humanity is definitely something that I've written about. And I will continue to write about that. Um, that stemmed from my disastrous brushes with mental health. And illness and the lack therein and my insecurities are always on the table when I write. So there is a honesty to the written word that I confront that I don't necessarily feel is encouraged. So I do it, I do it, I don't do it on the low, but I do it on, um, in solitude. Mm. So, yeah, so I just want to remind listeners that this is the Truth to Power show and Radio for Brooklyn. We're talking to Nicole Goodwin, or a.k.a. Goodwin, um, 
about her performance art and about her writing, about uh, the interrogation of black bodies and the view of black bodies, uh, both in the in terms of um, you know uh, kind of gender and and gender spectrum and all these kinds of aspects in which identity is formed. Um, also, I think you believe you mentioned uh, Nina Simone uh, as being an influence. Yeah. Uh, you talked a little bit about, um, uh, you know, the sign of the times. So tell, tell us a little bit. What do you think is the, the, how, uh, how an artist should speak to the signs of the times? So tell us a little bit about, like, how that, um, uh, in what way do you feel that we're kind of coming into a place as a society where we're more receptive to these kinds of, or are we more receptive over the years to these kinds of interrogations? I, I feel like, you know, um, when growing up, there wasn't as much discussion around identity, identities, and uh, obviously we, we weren't um, kind of asked or requested to, you know, do these kinds of things that we do today, like, you know, identify pronouns, these kinds of things like that. Yeah. And that kind of allows space for, people who identify differently to emerge and, and kind of encouraging people to uh, interrogate their own uh, gender identification. So, but in what ways, the question had to do with the sign of the times and how you feel or how you interpret the changing times and how things have changed over the years in your lifetime. Um, it's a conundrum because when you are dealing with art, you're dealing with the prospect of money. Yeah, yeah. And how much truth can so, you yeah. <laughs> not only can you sell, but can can be lucrative to sell. And I was having a discussion with a friend of mine um, about what is career suicide and what isn't uh. as a black as a black um, entrepreneur, as a black woman, as a black queer woman who's an artist, what what can I say? How far can I go before I am cut off mm. financially? And will I be able to create art on a restricted financial diet? Mm. And I'm like, I'm in a position where I can make navigate navigate different moves compared to different artists so i have yet to discover the answer to that question of how far i can push it yeah because i just want to tell the truth i just want to tell stories that are true i just want to bring up um conversations that are honest and that doesn't necessarily mean I'm completely right, 100%. But if I get 80% right, you know, I'm happy. If I get 60, you know, I need to work on it. Mm. But there's definitely a lot of growth in my career that I don't have yet. I don't have the clout. I'm still new to the game. So I don't have the clout that other artists have or gaining. And like I said before, it, it relates to 
how warped you become when it comes to following the rules, how the rules can warp you and confuse you and create a, a schizoid type of dialect in you. Mm. And then you wonder what you have lost in trying to in trying to obey the rules what have you lost and that kind of power the power to tell the truth and just un just un just unabashedly telling the truth was what Nina Simone was talking about mm. thank you thank you so um also, I, I, I want to just put out there, I, I realize I didn't give you up a heads up, but if you want to share some of your writing, uh, if you have something ready. So I didn't, I didn't mention that beforehand. I forgot to. But if you have anything uh, ready on the spot, to read a little bit from your writing. And I'll speak a little bit um, for a little bit while you prepare something or you get something, if you have anything ready. Well, I can read from War Cries. That would be if, if that's a... Um, yeah, that would be great. Thank you, thank you. One of the things I'll read you one of my favorites. And it's on it's basically on my opinion of war and what it does to a person. Great, great. It became its own God. One fist punch, hard, cracked, blurred faces. Bloody knuckles make for clumsy clubs. Loathing. Two. They no longer serve their master's doctrines. They only kill to live. Hands anointed by the grace of sandstorms. The caress of midnight frozen. High flying defiant. Three. Survivors returning at the mercy of their own choking throats. Only the training keeps the blood from gushing into the promised land. Four. Legs worthless carry me forward. I am blessed with a curse. Paul, Paul bearing myself onward. The end was no resolution. Thank you, thank you. Very beautiful, very beautiful. Thank you. Um, so now, uh, so I tell us a little bit of your process uh, in writing that piece and writing pieces like this. Do you, you're focusing on uh, specific experience, and you're kind of giving the images, great images, and great kind of co uh, corresponding images. And you're like, uh, what do you think is the principal um, takeaway, or what is what is the principal gift you're giving? your listener or your or your reader or your viewer and there's many different aspects to this because when you think about like how you relate with the um the reader or the the listener and how it you it just it relates also to what you were saying about you know how much you can push the listener um that is kind of correlated to that but what do you hope the the listener will take away from you uh kind of gifting them in all seriousness I allow the book to have its own life. Yeah. And the poems to have its own 
breath mm. because I I learned early on that some people are not going to take these poems seriously. Yeah. Regardless of how painful they are to me. And I had to separate myself from the work after a while. The mm. work has to speak for itself. The work has to stand on its own. And I think it's done a good job doing just that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I hope people will investigate that and investigate this work and, and kind of take a look at uh, your your other work as well. Um, so we still have, uh, we're about halfway through. So now, um, yes, and also that I would say um, asking the question, like this kind of prompts me to there's a question because um, we talked a little bit about uh, kind of judgments or, you know, um, as far as what has been your valuable failure, what has been the valuable failure? Like, you know, we think about success and failure. We think about, uh, and we can talk to both, talk to both points, but, um, you know, when we think about successes, artistic successes, uh, we can talk about that. We can talk about artistic failures and how we kind of can turn the, uh, dial on, on a failure and make it into something, you know, positive. So thinking about like that matrix of successes and failures and how they've informed your work. I think one of the hardest things about success and failure that informed my work was dealing with the child welfare system yeah, and fighting for custody of my daughter numerous times while being an artist, while being an activist, while trying to have some shred of purpose. And I think the hardest thing about that is when you try to put emotions like depression, like PTSD in a box, then you are missing the whole point of these emotions and how they affect people. And if there's any failure, it's the failure to understand that. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting. And then you mentioned what, what do you think is the biggest success you've had? Wow, um, I guess for me being a mom. Yeah, I think. Don't get me wrong; that has fueled my art a great deal. I was recently announced to be one of twenty-one artists to watch by Aunt Mad. And I'm really proud of that feat. It took mm. me, it took me years to get noticed, and I'm getting some notoriety now. So I'm growing into that. But everything I do, I do for my child. I do for my kid. Even when it comes down to creating a legacy, she'll be proud of. Mm. And that relates to COVID as well. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about COVID and how this past year has informed your process and uh, in what way has it impacted you? In what way has your, your art, I mean, and what way has your art or artistic process been impacted by COVID? 
Well, definitely is giving me time to create art for myself, mm. which is um, which is refreshing because it really takes the it takes the idea of people watching and people anticipating out of my mouth out of my mind for a while, and I could just get back to the basics of what made me happy, and it gave me space to do that. Um, I'm also back in school. I'm an MF, I'm an MFA candidate, and I'm learning and exploring ideas about teaching that it never occurred to me before. And it's also taught me that domesticity is important. Mm. And I used to look down on that. As a quote-unquote feminist woman, I used to look down on domesticity. And then I realized the power of making a home for yourself and for others is, again, it's a vulnerability as strength. It's a, it's a softness as a strength, rather it be a deficit. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that that's something that, as you're saying, is uh, a difficult truth that people like don't like to acknowledge, you know, it's something that um, it's important to recognize because, uh, you know, people seem to skirt by that. And like, you know, it definitely, the feeling that comes up when we are vulnerable is not always pleasant, but uh, no. at the same time that when you push through it, I think you're able to get to that stronger wall, that stronger feeling, you know? So, um, in regards to the support you had with your art, um, you know, it's easy to be like, you know, reliant upon you. Cause you mentioned about how, uh, there were times when you've, you, you were kind of not as supported in your anti-woman project as other times, yeah. but yeah. And that, and that kind of, that kind of aspect of like feeling the need, feeling the need to, you know, defend the project might've been difficult. So tell us a little bit about that aspect of it. Well, I am in constant war with people when it comes to defending the project to the point where I'm like, I've moved to silence. Yeah. I decided the project will speak for itself. Yeah. So it's it's difficult. It's difficult. People misconstrued it. And I'm like, of course you misconstrued it. It's because of my body. Yeah. That's doing yeah. it. If it were a younger, skinnier body, you would have no issues with it. Yeah. Or very little issue. So also, um, this is the Truth to Power Show. I'm ready for Brooklyn. Uh, we're here with Nicole Goodwin, a.k.a. Goodwin, talking about performance art, talking about uh, writing, um, talking about, uh, you know, kind of the interrogation and the ways in which we kind of uh, interrogate blackness, interrogate bodies, interrogate uh, our histories, or even our histories. Um kind of like looking at the ways in which personal histories can become politicized. Uh, I think this is a great example of the personal is political because it's like, you know, they, they're kind of leveraging the, the viewers kind of, or the, the recipients are kind of leveraging the idea of like something that's very integral to your identity and kind of saying that they're giving a judgment on there. They're kind of, they're giving that view, that gaze um, in which it's, it's a judgmental gaze or judgmental and you're interrogating that you're exposing that in your art. I think that's what I'm hearing is that, um, 
in a way you're kind of interrogating exposing these kind of gazes and these kind of uh, ways in which we interpret and judge people um and now you're working at mfa uh it says you're digital interdisciplinary arts so tell us a little bit about what um what that entails or what kind of um you're doing with your mfa program what was your project what is your main thesis project and all that kind of thing well the thesis project is going to be um that's kind of up in the air right now due to covid mm. yeah, yeah of course but um one of the projects that i have been working on is um called cold poetry and it's basically my expansion of words into the future by writing code and using a visual, creating a visual world, but also a, t a text-driven world that includes poetry and that encourages other coders and poets to come in and create and build upon this world. And it can literally become its own entity, its own realm. So it's basically uh, civil rights into the future. Mm, interesting interesting um so what what form will it take did you mention uh what form will it take or what kind of it, poetry right uh so it's, poems poetry, it's, it's poetry but it's also code oh. so it's written into how code demands so much reverence and power mm. without it our computers can't run our electronics can run. So these basic things that are written into the structure of our tools, our modern day tools, is what I'm focusing on. Mm. Um, I remember when Audre Lorde said you can't um you can't destroy Master's house with Master's tools. Mm. I always reconsidered that because I said, but you can destroy master's house with master's tools as long as you wield the power to know you are not one of them yeah mm. know your place in the history and the fabric of time and space and where you are right now mm. and the empowerment you can gain by not being master's tool but wielding something honest and and vulnerable and powerful not to destroy but to create mm. yeah thank you thank you um as we start to wind down why don't we listen to one more piece if you like uh so, something else from more cries or anything you like to read and then we can discuss that a little bit then we can kind of wind down sure um Shadows of September. One. I left you alone, daughter, back when I draped green fatigues and blackened boots. Wore a rifle for purpose and protection, the horse and pony shows. I wish I could say it was all honest work defending the red, white, and blue, but that was a great mistake. When the killing started, when the gloves came off, I was just a little girl again 
who wants it more than anything to come home to. It has been a few years, hours, minutes, seconds. I still haven't found the answers, only empty questions. Your angelic face, scarred no soul. Your infant hands held no malice. Your pristine feet treaded upon no nation. Out there, I wished I resembled you, child. Graciousness spewed from your lips as dribbles as you slept. Small reminders that there was a God in the sense. Thank you. Thank you. And that kind of prompted me the question about faith and about, um, you know, kind of your interrogation of faith or your kind of feelings about faith. What, what, are your, what was your upbringing and what is your feelings about faith right now? Well, I was raised Baptist, but I'm agnostic right now. Mm-hmm. And especially coming after the last four years, um, I, I don't necessarily see how anybody cannot question um, the sanctity of Christianity. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I allow myself to speak on God, but in a way that's not built into a church or marred to a church. It's finding God in the patchwork. Mm. And do you believe in uh, now you finding God? So you still connect with uh, the. What does that mean to you? What is that finding God in the patchwork? Can you expand a little bit on that, or like in other words, like how have you? Is it kind of a quiet spirituality, or is it kind of humanism, or what is the? What would you think is the expression you expression you would come to? I think it's a cross between um, spirituality and humanism. Mm. I believe God works through the people. If there is a God, he, she, it, there, they work through the people. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, I definitely feel like, you know, our divinity, our, our divinity comes through us, you know, works through us. Divinity works through us, rather. Um, and that's definitely something I believe as well. I think it's good to understand that you know, all of us are empowered with our sparks and all of us are empowered with our, each one of us holds that flame, our direct contact with the, with source, if you will. Um, so I have a few announcements to make. Uh, you're listening to Ready for Brooklyn. Uh, if you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something about the uh, uh, city in which you're getting in your workout. City Running Tours now offering neighborhood running tours designed with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods and those unique touring tours offer an opportunity with the history of the neighborhood and get personal recommendations of your guide. Choose some tours of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island, Sydney, Roosevelt Island. For information on running tours, see the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule, check out the website citywarningtours.com slash New York City. And check out the live tour every Saturday at 10 a.m. on Instagram.com slash City Running Tours. Um, also, uh, let me see. Um, if 
if you're listening to this uh, episode on the computer, please free yourself up by listening on the uh, iPhone or Android uh, by going to the Play Store and searching for Radio for Brooklyn in your Play Stores. Uh, and then you can get the app for these, iPhone or Android. Um, also, Radio for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to the uh, community. So uh, if you'd like to give a monthly donation or one-time pledge or a monthly pledge or one-time donation, please go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate and consider sponsoring uh, Ready for Brooklyn. Um, yeah, that's about all. And then uh, any last words, Nicole or Goodwin? Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, where can we follow you? Where can we find out more information about your, your exploits? Um, you can follow me on IG under good at Goodwin. That's at G O O D W dot Y dot N nine. Okay, great, great. Um, so let's see. Um, I may play a song going out, so I'm trying to see what what comes up for me as far as uh, music goes. Um. Let's see. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, this is the way for Brooklyn Truth to Power Show. Uh, we air every Monday at 8 a.m., coming in live 8 to 9 a.m. So, uh, let me see if I can play a quick song. Uh, I'll play Once in a Lifetime by Wolf Sheen. Um, and then maybe we'll go into another one. But thank you so much for being here. We'll play some music out. And thanks so much for being here. And, uh, this episode is rebroadcasting on Thursday, 9 a.m., and then in five days it'll go to archives. Five to six, ten days it'll go to archive. Thank you. The music is playing, although I don't think you can hear it. No, I can yeah. hear it. Oh, okay, yeah. It's getting dark. All right, thanks so much. Thank you, Bye. Okay, bye. up from the islands When distance fades to stormy gray Wash out from the deep of the ocean Here I will stand to face your wrath While all the others are Count on my heart And when 
Get a good feeling. 